Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Hey everyone, welcome to the Joey Sturges Forum podcast, and today we have with us two special guests, Carson and Grant, who are production partners and co-owners of the studio Atrium Audio. How are you doing, guys? Good. Good, how are you? Yeah, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we appreciate it. I have a question before we go any further. Grant, have I met you before? Uh, sorry, who's talking again? This is Al. <laughs> have we toured together? Did we tour together in 2010? Uh, I played in a band called This or the Apocalypse. Back well, then. were you on the Doth Chimera tour? Yes. All right. Well, then I have met you. Cool. Isle is in Doth. Yeah. Oh. Oh, what's up, dude? Yeah, we we didn't really probably communicate much on that tour, but that's cool. No, uh, I'm extremely antisocial. Anyways, <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I'm positive we didn't yep. interact. That's it, cool. Yeah, it always took me about three weeks before I would talk to anybody in another band i wouldn't so. want to interact with grant either <laughs> <laughs> why <laughs> you know just because he's grant just because fair enough so uh, all right so how did you guys meet by the way hmm well uh we met actually i would say in 2004 ish 2005 yeah. grant yeah uh i actually recorded grant's pop punk band and that's how we met. And they they were one of the first bands I ever recorded, actually. So, and then, in, uh, yeah. In two thousand four, he had a pop punk band. Uh, it was my awful high school band. Okay, uh, how did that lead to working together? Uh, well, it's kind of interesting, I guess. Uh, back in two thousand four, Carson had recorded uh, some demos for August Burns Red, and. Those demos were made public. Uh, I think they put them up on their MySpace page, and uh, that's back when the the band was starting to gain some local popularity. And uh, around the same time, those songs eventually ended up being the demos for their first album on Solid State, Thrill Seeker. So I heard the the demos, and I was really impressed with the production value back then. And uh, I. I'm sure they sound uh, like a fucking joke right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know how that goes. I think that happens yeah. to all of us, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we all hate everything we've ever put out. I hate everything I've done up until yesterday, so. <laughs> I, I hate what I'm working on now, too. But um, <laughs> I, hate, I hate myself and want to die, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck this podcast. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> okay, so sorry, Grant, go on. Long, the long story short is that uh, it was the best you know, quality we could get for a recording around here. And, uh, we went to work with Carson and, uh, Carson had a, another project called Century that, uh, was kind of his solo project. And when I was recording, I asked him if he ever considered making it a full-time gig or, you know, like a, like a touring band or anything. And at that point it was just him. So, so you uh, joined Century? Yes. Okay, and then you got so since I'm going to guess that since Grant was already recording, somehow that led to you recording with Grant. Well, actually, I didn't start recording until 2008 or 2009. And I'm just wondering how you ended up being the production partner. Right. So fast forward a couple of years, around 2008 or 2009, uh, I 
started trying to record some demos, I'll use the word trying, on my laptop. And, you know, I got like a Line 6 pod and like Superior Drummer. And I was trying to write music for my my own band, This or the Apocalypse. And uh, I took the demos in with Carson so that he could help me kind of do some production on them. From there, it just kind of snowballed. I mean, I mean, you just asked me if I wanted to work at your studio. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Grant doesn't give himself enough credit. I mean, he's one of those dudes that's like super smart and very talented with music. He's got perfect pitch and like, you know, he's been playing music since he was, I don't know, in the womb, I guess. Um, and uh, he got very good at recording really fast once he started to you know get into it and he recorded a bunch of local bands on his laptop in his in their practice space and you know i just always thought that his stuff was great and i you know he's a great friend of mine we've been in bands and stuff together so when he was kind of looking for a place to work out of i just said come over to my place and start working and then we just kind of developed this workflow where we you know we do stuff together and he typically focuses on all the vocals and i focus on all the instruments and um it just worked out like that and then just kind of developed into this thing where now we do all of our projects together. So so let's talk about your workflow some because that's pretty interesting. So do you guys have two different rooms and then kind of like while you're working on the instruments, he'll be recording the vocals or how does that work? Like, how, What's your workflow like and how did it develop? Uh, that's exactly right. Basically, we've got uh, two rooms in the studio. There's a room upstairs um, that has a uh, vocal ISO booth and then there's the main control room downstairs so what we'll do usually when uh when we do a full project together we'll record drums first then once they're done and we've got you know scratch guitar tracks reference uh we can print it down he takes that upstairs and starts working on vocals right away and i just start tracking all the guitars and bass and everything else and then uh so we kind of do that we he does vocals and i do the rest of the instruments at the same time we get you know twice as much done and then we we typically you know walk from our room to the other guy's room and check out what they're doing and give suggestions. So it's still very collaborative, but you know, at the same time, we've got this pretty good groove down now where, where we know how we like to do things and just kind of stick to it. I think that that solves one of the biggest problems with recording heavy music, which is saving the vocals for the very end. Kind of, you know, it's like the most important part of a record, but people are used to doing it at the very end and cramming it into two or three days. And right. the way you guys do it, I imagine, allows for plenty of time to explore ideas, let the vocalist be rested so that he can give the best possible performances and, and live with changes. Yeah, exactly. That, and that's that's one of the main things, too, because we, we, we hate when, um, you know, when we're pressed for time and, and a vocalist might, you know, get burnt out. This way we can space it out and they can really focus on you know, all the little details and, and the writing and getting it right from the start. So, yeah, it definitely helps out a lot. The other cool thing is that when Carson and I are working in two separate rooms, we'll often be like, hey, come check this out. And then we get a chance to hear something brand new for the first time. And, you know, both of us have objectivity to each other's work. So often we can add new ideas that the other person might not have thought of, because once you come up with your version of what you think it is, that's usually what it ends up being. Yeah, I think that's important for driving everything forward. Absolutely. 
Isn't that kind of how you work too, Joey? With I mean, not you don't have like a production partner, but don't you also do the multi multiple rooms deal? Yeah, I have a team, and sometimes we will utilize multiple locations too to our advantage as well. I mean, having multiple rooms is great, but even also having multiple locations is better. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, it can become a completely different obstacle to manage all of that, and not everybody can do it properly. So we definitely went through some changes, but I found it to be better for the for the music in the end. I think it was better for the music in the end. Well, you're not getting burned out. Yeah, that's the biggest thing that happens is that it clears your mind to think at least for me, uh, all the other guys, they had a lot of stuff to deal with. You know, <laughs> this guy has to deal with the guitar player. This guy has to deal with the drummer, etc. But when they put all of their time and energy to focus on those niche areas, it allows me to just think very clearly and openly about the creativity of the album and the direction and the overall perspective of this and that and uh, not have to worry about you know, do we have enough money to buy like another drum head because we broke the drum head or whatever? Like, that's someone else's problem. I don't have to think about that. If, you know, that's really, I think, the proper way to do it because you've got to have somebody who's focusing everything on the creativity part of it. Yeah, definitely. I think w when I started working in a team setting, like uh, getting Matt Brown, the drum tech, involved and John Douglas, the engineer involved and really started delegating, my work got instantly better and my hatred for the studio went way down. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's ama it's amazing how good your state of mind can be when you can actually rest. Except when people screw up what they're supposed to do and send something <laughs> to you that's not right. Especially edits. Yeah. Yes. But I mean you work Joel, you work with Joe. Who's he doesn't probably, do my editing, though. Oh, he doesn't? Yeah, he won't okay. touch it. It's a waste of his time. So he uh, focuses on the more important tasks, and I source out to other editors. But, you know, sometimes it's hit or miss. I mean, you guys know John Douglas. Uh, that's the only guy I'll work with. I mean, I've hired a couple other guys, but, man, it's rough stuff out there with drum editors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John's outstanding. <laughs> yeah. How, what, what do you guys do? Do you guys farm out your edits or do you edit yourselves? We, we've kind of, we've got uh, like a flow down so, so familiar at this point that we kind of prefer to do all of our own editing. We've experienced other people doing edits for us in the past and it's always kind of come back and we've always had problems you know with it so get to edit the edits yeah exactly so and 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 it's not that you know we think the way that we do it is better or whatever it's just that you know we have a very kind of specific we know exactly what we want and we have a really good workflow down we can get edits done quickly you know uh so we, we typically just do it ourselves do you guys have interns or anything or is it just the two of you. We do. We do have uh, usually one intern. Uh, we don't have an intern right now, but we have one starting in about a month. And they're usually doing it for school credit. And do they just handle like the, the bullshit, like running and yeah, clean much. up and all that? Yeah, yeah essentially. We, we've had a couple interns actually that have been really good with, you know, Pro Tools and, and they record themselves and... Uh, and that's been definitely advantageous because we can give them more responsibilities in the middle of a session. You know, they can track some stuff and they can help edit if we need it. And, uh, you know, we show them how we do stuff. And and uh, we've actually learned plenty of stuff from interns, too. You know, I, I like the process of, of seeing how other people do things and then kind of taking, you know, that 
and somehow applying it to our process in our own way. So, yeah, and but but usually it's just people taking out the trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's important too. Yeah. It might really important. Um, so, speaking of edits and doing it yourself and all that, uh, let's talk about some drums because you've worked with all different types of drummers and drum situations. And we've worked with some of the same people like, you know, Matt Reiner from August Burns Red. So like, I know that when you have a monster like him in, do you take a different approach than say a guy that might not be so good and hits kind of light? Or do you change it up completely between when you get someone like Matt or someone from a, one of the rock bands you record? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it all depends on the player. But, you know, when we have someone like Madden, we're not just sitting there trying to get, you know, the right take. It's it's we have eight great takes and there's slight differences in each one. And sometimes we'll listen to the way he's hitting a cymbal in one take compared to the other. And, you know, he'll play different drum fills every time that their music is so complex. But Matt is just one of those guys that he can just free form through it. And it's you know, we get a lot of time to take you know care in making those choices with him and and he likes to sit with us while we do that yeah usually what we'll do when we track him in particular is you know like grant said we'll get a whole bunch of takes uh, you know we'll get our keeper takes and then we'll go through and actually listen to you know i don't know eight bars or so at a time and listen through all the playlists and choose our best you know our favorite uh moments from each take and just kind of do a comp of drums you know and then once we have the comp done then we'll go through and edit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's great. He's an example of a player that makes it incredibly easy, you know, just because pretty much everything he plays sounds incredible, you know. Um, you don't really have to yeah. do much to it. And, um, and he hits really hard, too, which is great. That's something that we like. So, I feel like the drummer is literally 50% of the battle when it comes to getting a badass drum tone, at least before you start doing mixing things. Oh, for sure, yeah. But yeah, I feel like everything else, like the microphones, preamps, room, all that, that's important, but it all falls by the wayside in comparison to how important the drummer is. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we, we've, we've, I mean, we have a, a drum kit here that we like to use a lot. It's a, it's a custom DW. It's a really nice kit, and we use it on a ton of stuff. It's kind of our go-to, and I mean... For the last, I don't know, a couple years, we've pretty much been using kind of the same set of mics. So, you know, in a really controlled environment, you sit someone like Matt down at that kit with those mics, with whatever pre's we're using, and have him play. And then, you know, you walk in some other guy and have him play. It'll sound totally different with all the same shit. So, yeah, it's definitely, you know, majority, I would say, uh, of the sound comes from the playing. Definitely. All right. So then let's talk about the opposite situation. Seeing that the the variable that stays the same, so I guess maybe it's not a variable, but uh, is the setup. So say you do get somebody in there that's not so awesome. What's your approach then? Rather, because so with Matt, it's more about getting a bunch of takes and putting together the best of the best. But what about when someone is uh, not so good? Well, 
I think, uh, you know, we try to work with through it with them. You know, if someone isn't nailing it and we can tell that it's, you know, it's not working, we'll just basically assess it on a case-by-case basis and then, you know, try to correct the problems and try to work with them through, you know, figuring out how they want to do a fill or how hard they need to hit. You know, we'll kind of, you know, coach someone along if they need it. Uh, someone like Matt doesn't need it because he's just so experienced at this point and he knows what to do and he knows, you know, how he wants his parts to sound and with him it's more of a a creative thing you know like let's 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 write some cool parts or let's come up with a different you know way of doing this particular part in this particular song but with other other people i mean usually we'll we'll have to kind of you know just give them pointers and and we try to work like very proactively with you know people who aren't really sure what they want which i you know i think is probably a majority of you know the the bands that that come in we have to kind of work through it and and adapt to you know someone's playing style if it's not something we're used to and you know we we try to basically take what what someone is doing and figure out what their vision is for it and achieve that for them rather than trying to make them you know conform to our rules basically i I feel like a drummer like matt is one out of ten like one out of ten times you're gonna get somebody like that right yeah yeah, we, we we've had the opportunity to record some really amazing drummers, and and they're all kind of different in their own in their own right, you know. And uh, I mean, Matt's just great; he's always been super solid. So, Atrium Audio has moved once before, right? Yep. Yeah. So you guys had another location. What? Um, why did you guys move? And what's different with the new the newer one? Grant. Well, this is actually, if you count Carson's home studio, he had like a giant warehouse apartment. It was actually pretty cool. That was his first setup. We're now in our third location. Oh, okay. So the first setup, you know, I guess what ended up happening was, you know, Carson moved and, and no longer had that warehouse. I got married and bought a house. And then, yeah, <laughs> yep. so so that, it, it was basically my apartment, but there was this big open room attached to it. And it was a super cool room. Uh, it was all wood and drums sounded incredible. And it, obviously this is, you know, I guess 2005, 2004, 2005, we're talking. And I moved in 2006 and started renting this space in this warehouse downtown in Lancaster, PA, and did a lot of work to it. How many rooms? That was, uh, there was a main control room, there was an ISO, and then a big main drum room, and then, you know, like a storage room. So it wasn't huge. I'd say it was about, it was like kind of sectioned off on on the second floor of this old tobacco warehouse and I did a lot of construction work to that place to get it operational there was this 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 guy that I was pals with and and he had started building it out as a studio but I guess he didn't have the funds to finish it and he kind of just handed it off to me and I finished it up construction wise you know did a lot of drywall put some put a floor in the drum room and kind of made it my own and then that's when uh, Grant came into the picture, actually. That's the place we were at when Grant started working with me. All right, and then I've seen the pictures of the newer place, and it looks great. It looks really, really... Uh, it's nicely decorated. There's a lot of gear. Looks like you've got a really big control room. Like, it looks like a really nice place. Yeah, it's it's super nice. Thanks, man. Glad you like it. Thank um, you, yeah. So when you guys upgraded to that, what was the reason? Was it just, like, time or... Like how did and, and how did you guys go about doing that from the moment that you're like we need to move to 
the moment that you actually moved. How long did that take? Well, um, okay, so the band Live, you know, the band Live from the 90s? Yep. Uh, so their guitar player had built our current studio himself as just kind of a project studio. And he owned the building and built it out. It's three floors. And... Um, Real quick, isn't it funny the the bands from the '90s or the '80s, like the musicians and that, their idea of what like a project studio is? Oh yeah, yeah, totally different <laughs> perspective. Yeah, it's like three floors and all that is his project studio. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not huge square footage wise. I think the photos probably make it look bigger than it actually is, but I mean it's the perfect size for what Grant and I do. Um, we're really comfortable. It's here. a row home in the city, basically. Yeah, it's like converted into a studio, but it used to be like someone's house, I think. But yeah, anyway, well he he owned this place and built it out as a studio himself. He had an SSL console in here, and like he, it was really nice. And then um, he ended up selling it, and so he put it on the market, and Grant and I saw the opportunity to, because we've always been a big fan of this facility, so we snatched it up, we bought it from him, and uh, it just put us in a better scenario because we were renting our other space and spending more money renting that space than it takes to own this building, so... That's what uh that's actually the exact same thing that Chris Crummett said when he came on about the place that uh about building his own place and owning it is that rent was just annihilating him. Oh yeah, and you're just pissing all that money away too. So this way we're building some equity, you know. And so did you guys do any construction on it or was it just good to go? Uh it was pretty good to go. I mean, we made a few aesthetic changes, but I mean, the overall building of it was pretty much already done. All right. How long did it take between, I guess, when you heard about it to when it actually happened? Uh, a couple months. Uh, I'd say about two months to do the whole thing and, you know, do the move and move all of our gear Damn, in that's here. quick. That's yeah. quick. Every studio move I've ever been involved with takes so goddamn long. <laughs> it worked out great for us because, you know, like Grant said, this place was already pretty much good to go construction wise so it was pretty much plug and play we just had to move our gear in here and set up so the the thing that took the longest was just you know buying the building i'd say all right so since you brought up live i want to ask you about this because i've been working with a lot of 90s bands like candlebox and everclear live like yeah <laughs> how did that happen like how are you guys like just how is that happening um <laughs> Well, I guess I guess I'll handle this one, Grant, because I'm I'm the one yeah. with the group. Well, the when I was I think 13 years old and living at my you know mom and dad's house, the guitar player of Live, uh, Chad Taylor, moved in next door to me, and that was in '94, I think. No, '90 '95, I guess. Their big album, Throwing Copper, was out already, and I was actually already a fan of the band, so it was pretty cool because, like, the guitar player, one of my favorite bands, was moving in next door. It's like some bad sitcom or something. Uh, <laughs> so, But, yeah, and, and then he, uh, you know, he ended up just being very, um, you know, influential on me getting into music, and uh, he, you know, is has been a great friend of mine since I was a little kid, and... Um, He's actually pretty much the dude that got me into recording, too. Uh, he produced my old band that I was doing when I was in college, and I really enjoyed that process, and that's kind of how I, you know, got the itch to, to be in a studio for the rest of my life, I guess. And, um, 
you know, he taught me a lot of things early on uh, about Pro Tools and just kind of, you know, the, all the, the basic, you know, techniques of recording. And that's kind of how I got into it to begin with. And so he's just been a great friend and, and uh, you know, a great source of uh, inspiration and information over the years. And I feel like when people talk about the luck factor and gaining any success in music, I feel like that's the perfect example of the luck factor because... Obviously, you still had to work your ass off to get to where you are. You've gone through multiple changes in the studio, upgrades. You're always working. I mean, but the luck factor is that the guy happened to move in next door to you. Exactly. I yeah. mean, what if he had never moved in, your life might be completely different. Yeah, I might have not been interested in, in being in a band or learning about engineering and production to begin with if he hadn't moved in. So I, I definitely think that that has pretty much everything to do with you know, what, why I'm interested in what I'm interested in. And eventually, I mean, you're right though. I mean, I did have to obviously put in the years and, and get, you know, somewhat decent at recording until he, you know, asked us to engineer their latest record. So, I've, you know, we definitely had to earn that and it went well, but you know, he, he, uh, we, we recorded their newest album up at their studio in York, PA. They built this ridiculous, like, multi-million dollar studio up there. Like, they've got they've got an SSL duality in there. And yeah, I think if people listening to this are a little younger and don't know who Live is, Live was huge in the 90s. Yeah, big band from the they, 90s. Yeah, had some massive hits. They sold, I think, 24 million records. God. Yeah, worldwide. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's insanity how big they were. Like I remember that first song was on the radio for like 6 months straight. Yeah. And like uh 5 times a day or more. Uh, so, all right, so you went up to record at their spaceship studio. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So they asked us to engineer that and and um turned out really good and then from there, I believe Live did a tour with Everclear a couple summers ago. It was Everclear does a uh, tour over the summer every year with a bunch of you know like nostalgia '90s bands called the Summerland Tour. So Live was on that one year, and and Chad uh, recommended that Everclear have us produce their newest record. So the dude flew out and we did a demo at our place and uh it turned out good and we ended up getting the gig and so that's where we got that so as far as the candlebox project goes again i met the singer of that band kevin martin through chad because when live was on hi- hiatus for a couple years the three re- i guess they they kicked their singer out and the three rem- remaining members of live did this band called The Gracious Few, which was uh, comprised of those three guys and two members of Candlebox. And Kevin, the singer, was was the singer of that band, too. So is it different working with veterans like that than it is with newer bands? Uh, it depends. There's definitely times where, you know, I mean, we don't really need to to walk them through anything. We don't need to hold their hand through the process. They already get it. They've done it a lot. Um mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that sense, it, it feels very smooth and very simple. But, I mean, you know, with each project, there's always going to be little different hurdles to navigate and, you know, those kinds of things. But, I don't know, what do you, what do you, think, what do you think about that, Carson? Um, you know, I, it's interesting because uh, having had the opportunity to work with some, you know, older 
much more experienced veteran bands like that that have worked with, you know, obviously some of the top, you know, guys in the past. Ever. Yeah, I mean, they've they've all, I mean, between those three bands, Live Everclear and Candlebox, I mean, they've worked with, you know, pretty much any, like, big dog name that you can throw out. They've somehow worked with them sometime over the last 20 years. So, you know, it's a little, it's a little intimidating, uh, I'd say at first, but, you know, I mean, it's just a matter of, uh, of, again, navigating personalities, you know, and it's an interesting thing because typically, you know, when we work with a smaller, more unknown band, we are the ones that have to give the direction and have to tell them how to do stuff and, you know, suggest different ways. And we still do that with the big bands, but there's kind of more of a mutual understanding there. So there's a bit more of a shorthand in our communication, which makes everything a lot easier because they already get it, you know? Do you think it's also because they're set in their ways too? No, not necessarily. And and, and, interestingly enough, those three bands in particular were very receptive of you know, doing things differently than what they're used to. It's kind of a hybrid. I think for all three bands, we did all the basic tracking without all them standing in a room together playing live, which is kind of the traditional way of recording, you know. And Grant and I, you know, we've we've recorded a lot of more, you know, modern heavy bands. So obviously we're coming from a place where you're... That never happens. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, very, very rarely does a, a modern you know, metal core band or something stand in a room together and do one take. So, you know, it's, it's great though, because it puts us in a scenario where we have to, you know, figure out new creative ways of navigating the session. You know, uh, I love not being in my comfort zone because that's the way I learn. So, but it was cool. I mean, you know, all those bands, you know, luckily they're all cool and, um, you know, we're, very receptive of our ideas and how we wanted to do some things and and we kind of met them halfway on how they you know wanted to do some things and you know i think all three records turned out really great so i think that that's pretty interesting though that they all wanted to play at the same time i think that's one of the biggest differences between modern bands and older bands is that modern bands some of them never play together except for we're in there on stage right like ever yeah, power tab, everything, or sorry, yeah. guitar pro. That's the modern equivalent. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I mean, in my opinion, there's something to be said. I, I'm, you know, I'm 33 years old, and so my my stuff, my shit that I listen to is like 90s music, basically. I, I still listen to all the stuff that I listened to when I was a, a teenager, and um, you know, so like all the 90s rock bands, like Rage Against the Machine, and like you know, Live and Candlebox, and all those bands I grew up with. And that's kind of, there's definitely is something to be said about, you know, capturing an idea with a group in a room. And like you said, I mean, that doesn't really happen that often, at least, you know, in the, you know, heavy music genre in particular, and even the rock genre, I think at this point, you know, a lot of that stuff is, is, uh, you know, modern rock music has this, a lot of the same production techniques that, you know, yeah. modern heavy music does now too. But uh, there definitely is something very interesting and kind of indescribable about a band standing in a room and just figuring out a song together that, you know, makes it sound a certain way. And I'm a big fan of that, too. I think it depends on the band, though, and, and what their vibe is. I wonder, though, if in metal it's just a bad idea, too, because of the, because of the way that that music sounds like when it is played live. Like a metal record and a metal band sound completely different, whereas a rock band and a rock record 
actually sound more like each other. And there's a lot more space in rock music, so you don't have a lot of the super annoying things like the room going insane when the tempos are like 230 BPM and there's blast beats everywhere and like you can't understand what's going on. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't have those issues with a rock band. I mean, you know, we'll be, when we'd be recording, you know, like like Candlebox, for example, Kevin would be, Kevin, their, their vocalist, would often be shouting out, you know, when to hit the bridge and, and, you know, like, oh, stay on the B chord here. Like, you know, when you're playing music that is based kind of more on a chordal structure like that and not as much on lead guitar riffs, you know, they, they're kind of feeling the song out in a totally different way. Joey, have you ever recorded a band all at the same time? Back in the early days, I did get a couple of opportunities to do that with some local bands from my hometown. And, uh, you know, those those bands would focus all of their energy and time around being able to play and write in that way. And, you know, I, I had the opportunity as well to hang out with them a lot more beyond just recording. And so some of the conversations that they would have would be, a, you know, they'd talk about a bass line and... And they'd be like, well, I just don't think it's, you know, I don't think it works with what you're doing with your kick drum. So next time we all get together in a room and play, let's experiment with some different versions. And so it really was a process of refinement over, you know, as a group. And then uh, they, they wouldn't record the song at all until they felt like they had something that they could, you know, sit down and actually play. And, and they would test tempos um, as a group as well. So... It's definitely a different way of working. Yeah. yeah. I had a producer named Pete Thornton come to my place once. He's done some platinum stuff as well, and he brought this rock band with him that were like 16 years old and made them play live. And, man, it was, it was awesome. But the thing is, there's like I said before, there's so much space in that kind of music that it lends itself to sounding good when it's played all together. Definitely, um, yeah. And the band was tight as hell. So that, you know, if the band's not tight, you may as well not record like that. But I just, I can't imagine doing that on a really fast record or something, or a super heavy record. I feel like all you would do is introduce a bunch of noise into the room yeah. that you then are going to be stuck with. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we feel the same way. I mean, Grant, Grant and I kind of, for us, the process of, you know, the whole recording process and how we do it, I think, is largely dependent on what style of band it is. You know, we've got to record some rock bands and we've got, you know, to record uh, some faster, you know, death metal bands and stuff. And so the two processes, obviously, are just totally a different approach. So, but I mean, you know, it's just it's whatever complements the, the style of music. Like you said, there's more space in rock music so you can get away with with more of a live, you know, type of feel. If if that's what makes them comfortable and that's what, you know, is going to, you know, produce the best performance, then that's, you know, pretty much what we do. So I wanted to take a second and congratulate you guys on the Grammy nomination for August Burns Red. Thanks, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Joey, do you know anything about that? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say, but I'll just say I was a part of that. (laughs) That's awesome. That's, yeah, seriously, that's... It's huge honor, you know, that we would even be, you know, a part of something like this. And we're definitely very excited about it. So whatever yeah. involvement you had in that, you know, that definitely appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. I'll just say, you know, the the Academy is very interested in, in sort of, you know, representing music at large. There's a lot of different 
problems in the academy and there's a lot of different steps and it's very political and there's all these rules and everything and it takes a while to to really make things happen in a proper way but for a good reason you know they really want to protect the integrity of the past as well as embrace the future and that's very hard to do but they're very interested in in moving forward and trying to improve everything because you know last year for example Jack Black got the the metal grammy and and the metal community only has their one little tiny category and it's not even I don't think it's even televised so for them, they, they look at this as like, you know, we need to fix this. Uh, the yeah. community is obviously not happy with what's happening, and this is a problem, and we're going to fix it. So I think we're taking a step in the right direction, and I'm very pleased with the nominations this year. Yeah, man. Yeah. I think it's great. It's a really good mix, and they're all actual, you know, metal bands, you know. So so I didn't realize that Jack Black won in the non-televised metal segment. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> well, no idea. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> it, oh, I thought that he won like rock. I didn't realize he won the non-televised, like specifically metal. Yeah, yeah, best metal best performance. performance. Oh my god! And <laughs> the reason why, honestly, I think is because of the Dio thing. It was the song that won was a Dio tribute song, and. I mean, I'll say, like, you know, I think they covered it pretty pretty awesomely. I'm a fan of Jack Black, but do I think that it's the best metal performance? Not really. However, I don't want to discredit the, you know, everything that Dio has done and all those guys. And, you know, let's, let's take a moment to respect all of that. But... It just, I think it would have just the wrong, wrong place, wrong time, really. Yeah, I figured that with someone like Dio, you would give him more of a posthumous Lifetime Achievement Award or something. Right. You know, not a cover. Yeah, that that was the biggest, yeah. the biggest thing was like, it wasn't even a... An original song, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which you yeah. know, and the cat. A lot of people don't understand all the categories, too. You know, the category of best metal performance really is focused on the performance. It's about the the vocal delivery and the bands just really ripping. Like you can tell that 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 it wasn't phoned in. You can tell that they're really playing passionately. That's what the uh, that category is about. And I think you know you could, in a certain way, you could look at the Jack Black song and you could say, yeah, that that is a good performance, and they did it. But I mean, obviously, the community didn't agree, and that's that's how the Academy they try to be very neutral and they try to look at it that way and say, well. You know, it, it makes sense to us, but maybe we don't know what's best for the for this category. So let's get some people in here and figure it out. That's a positive thing, because I think award shows in general have lost a lot of credibility in the past maybe 10 years. Definitely. So it's a struggle it's to ride the ship. They spend a lot of money on trying to educate people and trying to, you know, they fly out to shows and talk to bands and say, hey, do you understand how the Grammys work? And almost no one does. And uh, they all think it's about, you know, how many records did you sell? How many video views do you have? And it actually has nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I could go on and on about the Grammys, but, um, <laughs> you know, congratulations on your nomination. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Thank you very much. We're, very we're, we're stoked for the band, and I think they deserve it. Uh, yeah, they're uh, they're really, really good. It's been a long time coming. I think this is a good representation of what they bring, what that portion of the community brings to the table. And, uh, 
you know, I, I just love it that I, I'm sure that there's, you know, the average committee member age is 50 years old. So I'm sure they're going and, and typing this into YouTube and seeing that, that music video <laughs> with the, oh. sh- the sharks and everything and yeah. uh, <laughs> being like, what the... <laughs> I think it's a well, good thing. Well, I mean, but that's a good point right there. You don't need you don't need fifty year olds deciding what the best metal performance is. I think yeah. it's a good thing. I think that it's eye opening to see that you can take that type of music and put it in a bunch of different perspectives, like they've done, like August Burns Red has done, and and a lot of the other nominations, and and it can all live in the same universe. Um, I say universe, though. Uh, it's a very big <laughs> landscape or environment, but <laughs> it's it's nice to see it all make sense, you know, to the to the music community at large. Um, and they might not understand it yet, but it's coming. Good. Definitely. Well, I'm glad to hear that that's uh, moving forward. Carson, I've got a question for you. Um, back to just talking about studio life yeah. and stuff. How long was it before you were making a full-time living at this? Hmm. I think that I only started doing this full-time, I believe, 2011 or 2012. Uh, does that sound right, Grant? 11 was when we moved into the, to the building here. Yeah, but I was so. still spending like half of my time at the film company, right? Or when uh, when did I quit Aurora? It was around that time. Yeah, yeah, it was around that time. I would say um, I, I worked at, at a um, film production company in Lancaster, PA, for I think about eight years. And I did design there, design work, some web development. And I that was my full-time job, and recording was kind of the thing that I did in the evenings. And, um, you know, just to, to supplement my income and because I enjoyed it and I was, you know, really into it. I don't think I quit my other job until about 2011 or 2012, and then I've just been doing this uh, since then. So that's uh, that's pretty awesome, though. So, but you've been able to make a living doing creative things then for a while. Yeah, yeah, very lucky to to be able to have done that. I mean, you know, I I, I personally can't like I I would hate myself if I wasn't doing something that I really enjoyed doing. You know, so. That's just not the kind of person I am. I can't, you know, I can't do something if I'm not like totally 100% into it. You know, I'd say get, you know, give it, give it everything you got, or don't do it at all, kind of thing. So, did you plan on getting to the point where you were doing it full time, or did that it just kind of evolve that way? It just evolved that way. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been very pragmatic. You know, I've, I've always loved recording, but I'm, I'm you know, based in reality. And uh, I'm not, I I didn't expect like, you know, just drop everything and just start recording until I, you know, had the work volume there that, that could justify it. So we were definitely careful, you know, about the choices we've made, but the whole thing definitely grew very organically since Grant and I started working together. We just kind of got in this flow where we were getting bigger and better projects and more full-length albums and less local bands doing demos. And uh, it just kind of grew and, you know, we raised our rates a little bit here and there. And then uh, eventually we were making enough and recording enough that we could, you know, both just do this full time, which is, you know, we're super lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. If I can jump in, I mean, it was kind of the exact same thing for me because I was 
you know, I was kind of touring part-time and recording part-time. And, uh, you know, this whole thing kind of developed. And, you know, as, as time grew and we kind of refined our skills and, you know, improved and, and the quality of the bands improved, you know, we started getting busier. And it got to a point where I realized that uh, this was going to be a much better, you know, choice for me overall. So I stopped touring and just came home to record full-time and, you know, I, I kind of wanted to have somewhat of a regular life anyway, so it just sort of worked out that way. But, you know, but all those things kind of lined up around the same time. And I think around, you know, th- within that same year, Carson and I both just ended up moving to, to move into recording full-time. Uh, timing's everything. Do you guys have any advice for any up-and-comers that want to do this full-time? Like, I feel like even... 2016 versus 2011 it's a totally different landscape than it was back then yeah like if you were trying to make a living now at it like to go from being amateur to pro like what would you do or what would you what would you say to someone who's dead set on that well definitely one of the biggest things i can say is make a lot of mistakes and then learn from them that's huge i feel like we've grown from you know learning uh in that way I'll, I'll pass it on to you. You can do the next one. Well, I, I mean, I just think it's a matter of being um, so into this that you you don't let yourself settle for, you know, okay, I'm I'm good at this now, and I'm going to, and I can't get any better, so here I am. You know what I mean? Like, I am constantly learning new things, constantly getting better and improving on you know things that we've done before, and I think just having that attitude is is probably you know key for anyone at any level, uh, especially if you're an amateur and you're trying to do it full time, you know, I think it's a matter of just, uh, you know, never settling for, for whatever you're, you know, whatever you can do at any given moment. If, if you can always learn and always keep improving and getting better at what you do, then that's the most important thing that you should focus on for a, a beginner. I think it's, it's, you know, uh, imperative to just do it as much as humanly possible, you know? And that's the same with any skill, I think. You know, if, if you're really into it and you really want to learn and get better at it, you just have to do it continuously, you know, every fucking day and, like, until you improve. That's how you improve. You know, I record... I started... When I started recording bands in my apartment, I did it for free, you know, for a long time. And then I started charging, like, 10 bucks an hour or something like that. And... You know, and it's just that if it, if you can start from a, a a place where your priority is not how much you're making, but how frequently you are practicing your you know the skill set that you want to learn, then that's you know you'll you'll grow from there. You know, I, I think if you're too focused on how much you're making early on, you're going to get discouraged, and you know that's it's not conducive to uh, moving forward in, in a productive way. So. You know, just do it as much as you can. Do it for free. You know, record friends bands for free. Record your own shit if you don't have anyone that wants to work with you. And, um, you know, use the the tools that you have at your disposal. I, mean, I Joey, I think you're, you're very familiar with that process, too, because I know that, you know, when you started recording, you know, you were kind of known for getting a big sound out of limited tools, right? Yeah. And it was about sacrifice in the beginning. And, but, I, you know, I, I, while I sacrificed a lot at the same time, it wasn't, um, you know, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have like a house to worry about. I, I really didn't even have an apartment to worry about. I just slept on the couch and I think that was the sacrifice. But at the time it didn't really seem like a big sacrifice. It just kind of seemed like, 
this is what I wanted to be doing. Like, I just wanted to hang out with dudes and like record songs and just have fun. And, but I like what you said about standards and well, I'll elaborate. I think you got to keep your standards high. You got to keep progressing. You got to keep looking at that next step, that next level, but enjoy the journey at the same time. Don't, uh, you know, like, like we said at the beginning of the show, we all, I'm sure we all hate our work, but that's the endless pursuit of the artist, right? It hates every painting. <laughs> yeah. Every, Great artist never finished. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as far as motivation goes, you know, I think there's, there's kind of two avenues to motivation um, if you're having trouble with it. And I, I think you should be afraid of having a mundane job, uh, something that's boring. You know, that should motivate you to get good at this and to keep progressing. And, and also competition. I think there's a competition is huge now there's a very saturated market in terms of audio production and you should be looking to your left and to your right and going well one of us is going to go forward so it might as well be me and i think those are two good ways to motivate yourself if you're struggling with that and just keep your standards high and and we and realize that somebody is going to be willing to sacrifice more than you so who's going to win i guess it's not always a competition obviously but it's a good way to think of it yeah i mean there, there's a healthy competitive attitude that you can have that like you said it'll motivate you to you know keep keep improving so i definitely agree with that so we've got some questions from our listeners for you guys hold on i have the question of all questions all right. i need to know what's up with galactic empire <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll take this one go for it um so about two years ago I made a uh, drum playthrough video that I put on YouTube of uh, myself playing uh, drums along to the London Symphony Orchestra uh, playing the Imperial March. And, um, you know, it was a fun video and, you know, it sat online for a while. And The Imperial March is from Star Wars, in case anyone's wondering. Oh, yeah, that's a good thing to add there. John Williams, Star Wars score. So, you know, I kind of always had in the back of my mind, like, at some point it would be kind of fun to, you know add some guitar and bass and maybe kind of do like an arrangement. But there have been so many covers and, you know, I've seen so many people do Star Wars metal. And I was like, you know what, if I want to do this, I want to do it like no one's ever done it before. And so in May of this past year, uh, anytime we've been in between sessions, I'd been kind of working on this thing, but I ended up finding myself with 11 songs. Uh, I brought Carson in around like... I don't know. After I had recorded guitars for fun for the first song, I, I, I realized that it could be a really cool project. So, you know, we worked together and, and created this entire full length record that covers all six movies of the original saga, you know, before The Force Awakens kind of came into the picture. And then, you know, Carson and I were sort of talking and we're like, you know, it'd be kind of fun to do a music video. And then we we're like, well, maybe it'd be fun to do a music video if we were in full Star Wars costume and the whole <laughs> idea just kept snowballing and uh you know we I honestly don't even know like how we got from point A to point B it's just kind of crazy because you know that we we went and actually we worked with Aurora Films which is the company Yeah that's the, that's yeah. the company I worked for for like 8 years. So we shot the music video with them and you know they're a local company but they have some incredibly talented people there and uh so anyway, you know, we ended up with this ridiculous music video and, and we put it online and within one, oh, sorry. Well, I guess I should say we put it online the day The Force Awakens came out. Oh. And uh, 
Carson and I are like standing in line to see the movie and we're just watching it climb. Like we're refreshing our phones. It's like, oh, got another 5,000 plays. And we keep hitting refresh and we're just like extremely excited. And and we go see the movie. We turn our phones off and then we like get out of the movie. And, and, you know, by the end of that evening, it already had a million views. And and within a week, it it climbed up to over 7 million views combined on uh, Facebook and YouTube. So it's just like it just blew up out of nowhere and it's hilarious because it was kind of just a total joke idea you know and I never really you know had huge plans for it I I mean I I would definitely say I would hope that it would do something like this but I never imagined that we'd get the kind of reception that we got that's so awesome it was very cool I love it well it's really well done Uh, I get it like I know about all most of those covers you see out there are really bad quality like bad playing, wrong notes, like not interesting, dumb videos, and yeah. so you guys kind of you guys kind of conquered all that all those different elements. Uh, I I get why it uh, blew up, and also the timing was perfect. Yeah, the timing was key, obviously, and and we that's like the one part of it that we kind of planned out. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, thank you. I'm glad that you like it. And, and I'm glad that it definitely, you know, I think it stands out from the other covers that I've heard so far, but when we were recording the album and we still are actually working on recording, there's like at any given time, there's like 40 fucking guitar tracks happening. So it's taking forever to like track the real guitars that are in tune and tight. We have scratch guitars right now as placeholders on a lot of the songs, but the way that we did it, the way that we approached it was to make essentially everything in the song exactly the parts from the, the orchestra and, you know, timing and and all the little nuances, all the little, you know, arpeggios, because John Williams and, and we kind of picked up, we picked apart the original London Symphony Orchestra recordings and just kind of went bar by bar and Grant would sit here and kind of pick out notes and be like, okay, there's that note in this octave, and then, you know, the horns over here are doing these notes, and then the the strings over here are doing that. And we'd, like, kind of really detailed, you know, listening, and, and, and we'd have to, like, pick out all the different parts that were happening in, in all the different sections of the orchestra, and then somehow translate that to represent those notes on guitar. So there's, like, a ton of guitar tracks, and a lot of it is single note stuff and a lot of different, like simultaneous octaves happening but when you pick apart john williams music i think this probably applies to any of his music because he's got such a distinct style of writing it's so fucking bizarre like the way that he writes music is so weird uh like key changes every like couple bars you know weird shit that doesn't make any sense or isn't in any kind of (laughs) scale you know i love it like it's great though and like you know major seconds and stuff and like there's like all kinds of crazy musical shit happening that's so outside of the box but it's still so catchy and ear like just earworm exactly and when it comes all together it works so well and that's why those pieces are so iconic so the one thing that we um wanted to stick to when doing it uh when recording the album was making exactly the piece that john williams made you know we're not really taking any creative liberty except for the drum parts because 
as far as the bass and guitars go, they're just playing the exact same thing that all the different sections of the orchestra are playing. See, that's the thing. That's to me the key differentiator between your guys's version and the other stuff I've heard. And I guess just the covers in general. When I hear people doing classical pieces on guitar or covers of other bands, it bothers me so much when they get wrong yeah. notes. It's like, how do you how do you do that? Yeah. They do not hear that it's the wrong note. I guess not. But uh, but yeah, with an orchestral piece like this, you have to look at the score. There's just no way that you're gonna successfully interpret every single thing that's happening without looking yeah. at the score. And those I pieces think. are so dense too. Like there's so much happening. Yep. You know, all at once. So it it was a challenge and took a long time. But we're thankfully kind of nearing the end of the recording process on that record. We're like fighting for downtime now because right. For some reason, the beginning of this year, we're super busy and we're trying to like find downtime to finish it because we want to put it out, you know, in the next couple months, the full album. But it's, you know, there's so much yet to do on it. And um, hopefully we're nearing the finish line on that. Yeah. Capitalize on the moment. Yeah, exactly. And we are, we're shooting another music video next week. So that's going to eat up our time as well. Yeah. I'm curious to see what that looks like. So let's do some uh, questions from the audience because we're starting to get there on time. Um, so subscriber Joey Lifting was asking, he says, I'd like to know how there's so much punch on the snare of the latest ABR without having massive amounts of high end. Hmm. Um, well, I think that a large part of it was getting a good snare sound to begin with. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying out a couple different snares in the room until we found one that worked really well. Did we end up using the Griner Kilmer, Grant? Uh, I think we used the Griner Kilmer, yeah. yeah. Um, Matt Griner, yeah. actually, their drummer, actually owns a co-owns a, a company that makes snares, and I think they're starting to make drum full drum sets now called Griner Kilmer. And I think we tried out like five or six different snares, like really nice snares, and the one that he brought in that he and his partner actually made by hand sounded the best and just had a great crack. Uh, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot, a lot of the, uh, the sound of that comes from the actual snare sound in the room. We blended in a sample with it, you know, as, as you pretty much kind of have to do to be, you know, competitive in, in heavy music production nowadays and not make something sound, you know, less powerful compared to something that does have a sample. So, but you know, the real kit sounded great to begin with. We made it punch a little bit more by mixing in a sample and, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else I can say about that. I think that's a pretty good yeah. answer is get it right from yeah, there the you source. Go. I mean, I guess maybe if I had to guess what he would technically want to know is how do you, I don't, I'm wondering if he meant punch or if he meant crack because he said high end. So I'll just ask you, do you have any ways that you would raise the crack of a snare without raising a bunch of high end? Yeah, actually, um, we've been doing this a lot lately, um, too is we'll do, uh, I don't know if you've ever um, actually I think the forum that we're on that production forum aisle uh, I learned this from there a while ago but uh, the the phase trick where you duplicate a snare track throw one track out of phase but then put a transient designer on it and raise the attack just slightly so the only thing that pokes out is the initial transient attack that's so, interesting yeah 
Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really cool technique that we, we actually just kind of recently started using a lot. And and it's great because then you print that to a track and then there's your attack right there and you can EQ it and you can raise it up in the mix and blend it in with the actual snare track. Um, another thing we've been doing a lot is using the FabFilter uh, multiband compressor. And we'll set that so um, the, uh, you know, probably from like 7K and up will be attenuated like 10 db but then whenever uh and then it has really fast like attack and release so whenever a transient hits it'll let it kind of through so it's kind of like a gate for the high end and that works really well and then you put a gate after that and it's pretty much sounds like a sample you know very um focused and isolated so that's a good a good uh part of it i i would think and then just you know we we do some stuff on our drum bus with uh saturation and very gentle parallel compression and uh you know i mean i i personally just kind of i like to hear a good snap in the snare i like to hear you know good power down in like the 200 range also so you know we boosted some key frequencies and then did the multi-band thing did the transient thing and blended in a sample i think the combination of all that stuff together is probably what makes the snare sound the way it does on that recording yeah you gotta have a, a lot of people i think will look at like you know eq is like a static like a mask so if you increase the high end of the eq on the snare you're just increasing the high end of the entire sound whereas doing like that phase reverse thing you're increasing kind of you're kind of doubling up the high end for a brief second uh Mm -hmm. Or like a shorter uh, burst of of EQ, so uh, I think not a lot of people are thinking about moving EQ, and that is part of you know how you get some of those tricky drum sounds is is having little bass boosts or tre- uh, treble boosts that come in and out uh, or move in a certain way, like in an envelope way. Definitely, very cool. All right, here's another one. Austin Schaefer is asking, can you go into some detail about the last 10 seconds of life album? How did you get those guitar and drum tones? (laughs) Well, the guitar in particular, I will say, is purely a product of uh, my friend Wyatt, uh, who's the guitar player of that band. We've recorded, I think, everything they've ever put out, maybe except their very first demo. And every time they come down here to record with us, he's got the, I think it's the Mike Mushok PRS signature baritone. So that's the guitar he always uses. And I believe we used, granted, we use a, the Uber shawl on the last record, or do we use like a 5150? Do you remember? I thought it was a 5150. But yeah, the guitar sound was Wyatt basically sat here and just said to me, so here's how I want my guitar to sound this time. I want you to make it sound like the most bassy fucking retarded thing you've ever heard. And I want people to listen to it and be like, that guy's a dick. (laughs) That was his creative direction to me. So I was like, okay, I think I can probably dial that in. And we, you know, we, (laughs) so that was it. That was, that was his thing. He was like, okay, I want people to think I'm a dick when they hear my guitar sound. So we just, um, you know, fucked around with uh, mic placement. I think it was 5150 block letter with a tube screamer through a Mesa 4x12. And, I think I used a combination of 
a 57, and a KM184 through Vintech Prize. I think when we came up with our original tone, Wyatt was like, okay, cool. Um, can you add more low end yeah, to that? Yeah, and it was already like stupid <laughs> low end. So we, did, we added more, and it was like, like shaking the entire room you know, with low end, and the sub was just like clearly overpowering the entire mix. And he'd say, yeah, pretty good. Maybe a little more low end. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question. I'm wondering, when you have someone who's asking for something like that, like too much low end on the guitars, like something that could potentially destroy a mix, how do you handle making the dude happy but also not letting the guitar just ruin the mix. Well, I think it's a matter of, uh, you know, when you're sitting here playing the guitar through the monitor and you, you hear it back through the monitors and it's just the guitar on its own, it'll sound a certain way. And, you know, if you get someone that just wants to keep dialing in low end or keep dialing in high end or whatever they want, and it's starting to get into an area where you know it's not going to work, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll make them aware, like, we got to watch it, you know, on, on, on how much you know, low we get, because I know that in the context of a song and a mix, it's not going to work. It's going to, you know, it's going to make the kick and the bass go away. It's not going to be dynamic or it's going to be too, you know, maybe it's going to be too fizzy or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I've gotten pretty good at listening, being able to listen to guitar soloed and knowing, you know, if kind of the frequency balance of the, the tone is going to work in a full mix. But what I did, and that, that was actually a, a rare instance because Wyatt and I are such good friends that I was just like all right fuck it and uh and we kind of you know just had fun with it and then when it came time to actually mix you know I I essentially you know did a high pass at like I don't know 90 or something like that or 100 and it still sounded heavy but that's because in the context of the mix you know it sounded right with those with some EQ moves on it so, you know, I think it's just a matter of managing expectations and if someone is super adamant about doing something a certain way, but they just clearly don't know what they're talking about. I'll just, you know, I'll just politely say no, essentially. <laughs> Fair enough. That, that yeah. works. Okay. Matisse Clavinius is asking, how the hell do you manage to make all those different parts in such short songs as melodic and flowing in it, like in an ABR song? Like, because in one minute, yeah, I mean, in one three minute song, ABR pushes like seven different parts yet it doesn't sound disjointed. JB, honestly, you know, he he is a very good composer. They're a guitar player, um, JB. Yeah. JB writes all of their music and, and he demos it all out actually in uh in Tabit, which is kind of like an even more limited version of Guitar Pro. Uh and he he actually has all of the the synth pads and you know his violin parts and and the entire orchestration of the whole song already worked out before we come in so he's he's already 10 steps ahead of of everything and you know he he knows how to arrange something that's going to work and and not have parts that are fighting each other they're going to sound right and i think that's a big part of it definitely and when when we're actually in the studio i mean his demos like grant said are already pretty realized uh, as far as what his vision for all the different parts are and all the different instrumentation because he's got a really creative way of, of writing heavy music, which is why I'm I'm such a big fan of the way he writes. Because the songs are very interesting, you know. They're not they're not stock at all. They're not, you know, typical metal. He's always trying to do something different, which is great. And then you know we just refine it basically. You know, if there are structural things that maybe sound a little wonky, which you know there have been, but not many. You know, uh, you know we'll, we'll sit in. Uh, in a room together, Grant and I have ob objectivity, and we can just kind of work it out with the band. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, the last we did their last three records, and the, I'd say there were probably only a handful of instances where we even made you know a major structure change, which is really saying something about how good he is at writing because. I mean, to yeah. me, my obviously this is all subjective stuff, but you know, Grant and I sit in the room and listen to his demos, and it's like the, it's a, it's already a completed song. So, for a band like ABR, I think the majority of that is going to be credited to just the way JB writes. But then, you know, we'll get in the room and collaborate, and and you know, if stuff needs to be changed, or if he has an idea for a certain sound for a pad or like an instrument section, you know, if it's not the right thing, then we'll you know figure out what is the right thing, you know, in the room. So basically the flow is already there in the yeah. writing. Like, so you, you don't, you're not having to create a flow between parts in the mix that wasn't there already. Exactly. I mean, he, he's got such a vision for it that, you know, they're, they're actually one of my favorite bands to record, not, not because we're, you know, really good friends and I like the band a lot, but they're just so easy to record, you know, because they've got such a solid focused vision already, like, you know, right out of the gate. Absolutely. So Connor Hans is asking, was it challenging doing the Affiance record with heavy instruments against super melodic vocals? Uh, interestingly enough, with Affiance, uh, you know, I, I work very closely with Dennis. He, I mean, Dennis is incredibly talented. He's just... A vocalist? Yeah, he's he's got a great voice. And, um, you know, I, I, I do work with Dennis on... Um, you know, melodic choices and, and things like that. But he he's another one of those guys that, you know, they've they've just got this unique thing happening where they're combining metalcore with these like really uh, powerful kind of 80s style, you know, power ballad, you know, uh, Iron Maiden type vocals like a Bruce Dickinson approach. And, um, you know, the 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 parts that he writes work pretty well i mean you know there's an occasional time we'll have to make a choice but a lot of the time i'll spend with him working on you know arranging how we're gonna you know work with you know if it's a structure change on the song or or uh you know harmonies and and really kind of building you know an, an entire arrangement but i wouldn't say that he comes to the table with stuff that you know is fighting in any way it, it works um is that answering the question? I'm trying to. Well, I think that with vocals that like that, if it's not written well, then it's going to be really hard to get it to stand out, anyways. Yeah, Den yeah. Dennis's part, the, uh, the their vocalist parts, like Grant said, are already already you know pretty good. He's he's another example of someone who's very good at writing. Grant typically, you know, once we have you know the drums down and we kind of split off into rooms and Grant starts working with Dennis. Uh, we did their last two records, and both times uh, it was one of those things where all this, the the songs, you know, went through a lot of changes through the whole process of recording them from where we started, what we tracked drums to, and then Grant and Dennis will disappear upstairs into the uh, the B room where they record vocals, and once in a while Grant will just run downstairs and be like, okay, we figured out that you need to make a structure change to the music on your timeline we did this vocal part, you know, we figured it out and the notes are great, but, you know, or we need to change the chord progression under this vocal part because this vocal part is cooler or whatever. And, and you know, they'll do a lot of stuff and, and work, you know, work the parts out. And uh, the songs just kind of grow that natural, organic way as we kind of figure it out. It's, it's almost like figuring out a puzzle, you know? 
there is a lot of good stuff to work with from the the beginning, but you know the the songs definitely grew on the musical end and the vocal end kind of together, and they they, they kind of dictated what the other thing does. You know, makes sense. Okay, and final mm-hmm. questions are from Pavel Chisko. What's your favorite bass processing, and what's your typical two bus chain? Hmm. Well, uh, as far as bass goes, I kind of the Sansamp RBI is kind of my go-to. I'll do. You know, a lot of stuff through that. We like to, you know, do the thing where you separate the low and the high so you can process them differently uh-huh. uh, with EQ and limiting and um, just control the low end. I, I like to get a really... Typically what I'll do is we'll, we'll record, you know, bass. I'll get the DI and I'll get uh, the Sansamp signal, try to dial it, you know, however is going to suit the song uh, based on the player and the instrument and, you know, the material that they're playing to. Uh, so once we have a pretty good tone dialed, that's a good starting point. We'll record it, you know, we'll edit it, tune it usually, and then I'll typically use the Sansamp track for the um, kind of the high end. And sometimes if it if it calls for it, process it a little further. Sometimes maybe with an amp sim in Pro Tools to get a little bit more bite out of it. I really like that CLA bass plug-in too because I, I like the distortion on it a lot. And what I also usually do with uh, on the bass bus is use a multiband like C4 and uh, sidechain it to the kick. So it kind of ducks out certain frequencies whenever the kick is being played. And that's, you know, very important for especially like faster heavy music where there's a lot of kick because oh, you yeah. don't want the bass getting way, in the way of it. So, but that's pretty, pretty much it. I mean, as, as far as like the chain goes, I try to keep it as simple as possible. I'm I'm kind of OCD, you know, so I like to have everything as retardedly simple as possible if I can, and then only start adding things in if it needs it. So I don't really go too crazy with plugins and shit. I'd say the most we usually do is, you know, we'll record through the Sans amp and then, or sometimes a bass amp or whatever they, you know, if a band brings in some other cool shit, you know, we'll, we'll set that up and use it. You know, then, yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll separate the low and the high. We'll limit it, EQ them appropriately, do, you know, whatever the crossover is. Uh, and then I'll usually use like a, you know, an amp sim or CLA bass or something like that to enhance the high end and and then uh, some sidechain compression. That's about it. All right. And what about your two bus? Two bus, same, same type of deal. I mean, we try to keep it very simple. I like to get the mix in a spot where... It's sounding correct, and then we have um, we. I've been using the Manly uh, Verimu. We have uh, one of those, and uh, that's kind of been my go-to uh, two-bus compressor for the last year or so. And that's a really good unit. I think it sounds great. You can make it really dramatic effect with it, or you can have it very subtle and just kind of add some glue. And uh, and that's about it, honestly. I don't really do much else to the two bus because I try to get it sounding how I want it before I hit the compressor, and then I use the compressor to kind of glue it all together, and that that's about it. We've been summing before we hit the two bus, and that I think definitely has been a big part of uh, our sound as well. Oh yeah, we've got the Burl B thirty two summing amp. Ooh, how do you like that? I've always wanted to try that out. I own a mothership, so I'm oh, really sweet. into the Burl stuff. Yeah, dude, I think it's fantastic. We uh, uh, we got that about a year ago. We Up until then, we'd been using the Shadow Hills uh, Equinox for summing, and that was great, too. It just kept breaking on us, so by the time it broke for the third time, 
uh, we just kind of were like, all right, fuck this. We're going to send it back and get something else. And we got the burl and it's, it's been great. I mean, it, very transparent, you know, adds a lot of uh, headroom, adds a lot of depth. Uh, everything feels a little bit more alive and I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And plus it's 32 channels too, which is more than your typical summy amp. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of the burl, dude. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to end this now, but I just want to thank you guys for coming on and sharing so much info with our audience. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And uh, good luck with the uh, Galactic Empire record. I hope you guys get it done soon. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, just so you can capitalize. On yeah, the yeah for sure. Hopefully. Right. Well, there's probably another Star Wars movie coming out in like two years. So. Yeah. <laughs> you got that window. There's a few more. Yeah, there's definitely a few more movies coming. (laughs) Yeah, at least. So, cool. All right, dudes. Thanks so much. uh, All right, man. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.